FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Bioceutical Seminar Series, Reprogramming Autoimmunity. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Nicole Bilsma, a woman of passion, and her passion lies in environmental medicine. As a result of her own infertility issues, 10 miscarriages, and noticing a strong connection between many of her patients' illnesses and their home, Nicole established the building biology industry in Australia, and in 1999 founded the Australian College of Environmental Studies, a registered training organisation to educate people about the health hazards in the built environment. Nicole is an accomplished naturopath and acupuncturist of over 15 years experience, has trained over 2,000 naturopaths at various institutions, the best-selling author of Healthy Home, Healthy Family, has published in peer-reviewed journals, past columnist for Body and Soul newspaper, that's six million plus readers for that one, She's appeared in every major television network and is regularly consulted by the media to discuss electromagnetic fields, mould and chemicals. Nicole lectures extensively throughout Australia and abroad, educating integrative GPs about environmental health issues. She has three children and is currently doing her PhD on environmental chemical assessment. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine. How are you, Nicole? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. Now, I understand we're talking to sunny Melbourne at the moment, is that right? That's exactly right. And, of course, I'm coming down there in three days when there's a cold front coming through. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. If you wait an hour, it'll probably change. Now, we've podcasted before with you about mould, um, which is something, I tell you, what an eye-opener that podcast was for me. Now, however, mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about even some one of the most basic utilities that we think of and that we think we might have access to in our Western society, and that's even clean, fresh water. Yes. Now, what's the go with this? You know, we, we think it's just one of the basic tenets of our modern civilised society, and we think about a, a, you know, a beautiful sparkling rainforest stream. It might be the image that we come conjure up, but it seems to be quite far from this. Oh, absolutely. I think what people first need to get an awareness of is that the water on the planet is recycled um, naturally through nature, through yeah. the water cycle. So it doesn't go out into outer space and then replenish itself. It's, so when we contaminate the water because of air pollution, soil contaminants, um, plastics, throughout the entire globe, then, you know, ultimately we pollute ourselves. So we need to get a good perspective that this water is not a finite resource that when it's contaminated, it's it's a huge problem. And it's something that we ignore as practitioners because it's not in any of the courses, medicine, natural therapies, acupuncture, TCM, that actually train people to look at drinking water quality. We assume it's clean when the reality 
couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, and indeed, I was just um, uh, talking to a practitioner who specialises in uh, looking at parasites. And when you think about quote unquote healthy, more quote unquote natural communities, for instance, the northern rivers of New South Wales, where they, they might be attuned to more natural styles of living their water quality may indeed not be the best. And they're, you know, they're not thinking about water cleanliness. They're thinking that because it fell from the sky and landed on their roof that it's automatically clean. Exactly. And it's often, for example, it depends on the source of water, but, for example, with tank water, when it falls on the roof, that roof catchment area is a, is a significant contributor to water contaminants because mm. whatever's on that catchment, lead, lead uh, flashing, um, microbes, um, plastics, PVC, um, different metals in the in the roof itself, all of that can contaminate the tank and commonly does. And of course, lead would be the most common because it, we've got a huge tons and tons of lead dust sitting all over our major highways as a result of its use in um, uh, vehicle exhaust and, and, and petrol. Oh, that's right. And, uh, you know, that's something actually that I've never thought of is that I remember living in uh, this beautiful house in Brisbane and it was right on a main road and we could not mop the floors clean. Because there was a big gap in the front door underneath the eave, uh, underneath the threshold, um, we could never get that floor sparkling clean. There was always diesel dust. You know, you'd always have a and black. That, and so think about the roof, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Exactly. Well, that's an interesting point because more people die from breathing outdoor air, 50% of which is due to vehicle exhaust emissions, than they do from the road toll in Australia. You're, what? Yes, more people die from breathing outdoor air in Australia than they do from the road toll. And the reason is, is because 50% of the contaminants are due to vehicle exhaust uh, and living within 500 metres downwind from major traffic um, will in significantly increase your exposure to known carcinogens, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, particulates, black and elemental carbon, um, which can increase your risk for cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, allergies, and there's also some indicator that it may be increasing insulin resistance and, and type 2 diabetes. That's just stunning. Like, I, I, I mean, my knowledge was, you know, we, we have to be cautious about the... Um uh, the hexane and things like that in in unleaded fuel cars and and of course diesel is a known carcinogen, but I had no idea about the 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 real issues, the real health burden, if you like, from that. That is stunning. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I just wrote an article on it, um, wanting to get it published in one of the medical journals, and it looked at which what's in traffic exhaust and its impact on human health based on the literature and uh, what doctors and clinicians need to do to help patients reduce their exposures. And they didn't want to send it out to peer review because they said it's not relevant to practitioners. You're kidding me. <laughs> Can you believe it? it no, I can't. Be no, I can't believe it. I yeah. absolutely cannot believe that. So, uh, yeah. okay, so uh, this is, I think this highlights a real issue is that if dogmatic practitioners, I'm going to pick on them, medical practitioners are going to say there's no evidence for stuff, that evidence has to be published. And if the publishing houses aren't willing to publish something that might be a little bit against the dogma or against the status quo, then of course you've got a fate to complete, haven't you? There's none there and we're never going to look. Exactly. Because it's not based on the precautionary principle and the focus is so heavily based on treating the disease once it manifests. Mm. To get to the cause is like a foreign language to most people. Oh, my goodness. 
I didn't get that it would be so uh, such an obvious issue and yet totally ignored like that. When it's like, it's oh, right here, right here, fellas. You can wipe it off your roof. You can wipe it off your floor. And this is from the Bureau of Infrastructure and Transport. This is an Australian government resource, you know, that, you know, I think 30, in March this year, in the last 12 months, up until March this year, 1,331 people died on the road. More than 3,000 died from breathing outdoor air in Australia, 50% of which was due to vehicle exhaust. So, you know, these things are stats that are around that very few practitioners have an awareness of and knowing if clients live within 500 metres downwind from major traffic and we're not, and I mean, for example, in the Pacific Highway, you easily exceed 20,000 vehicles every day, mm. more than 5,000 diesel trucks and that is a significant exposure and increase in asthma and respiratory disorders and cardiovascular disease. I mean, at the moment, they're looking at doubling the amount of coal from Newcastle, which means that that coal corridor, the traffic and the, the Pacific Highway um, that goes from Newcastle to the port is going to double the amount of coal um, trucks Wow. Carting the coal, and there's over twenty five thousand children along that coal corridor within two hundred meters of either living or going to school that are going to be exposed. Okay, like I hope everybody's taking note of this stunned silence on the on the other line here. I'm just flabbergasted about that. And so, getting back to water, though. I mean, all of that's going to wash into our water. Well, not all of that. A certain proportion is going to wash into our waterways. Um, and yet we've even got issues with how we carry water around. Indeed, you know, plastic water bottles were banned in some US states. And was it San Francisco or? Yeah. yeah. So how should we be purifying our water? Do we have to look at reverse osmosis or can we get away with like a half micron carbon filter or? Well, that's, there is no such thing as an ideal water filter. So it all depends on what you want to remove as to which filter is going to be suitable. Right. So reverse osmosis is the most effective at removing most of the contaminants, including fluoride. And fluoride is such a small atom that it's very difficult to get rid of it, um, short of using ion exchange or a reverse osmosis. Now, a lot of natural therapists will... In in, uh, educate their clients to say that RO is not ideal because it leaves acidic water and leaves nothing in the water and therefore is not good. But the reality is all water in nature, whether it's lakes, rivers, the ocean, is slightly acidic because it absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, creating hydrogen ions, which actually acidifies the water. So all water in nature is slightly acidic. Hmm. So that's the first misnomer that people need to be aware of. Yeah. When you and, of course, then they go into detail on alkaline water. And to be honest, I don't recommend alkaline water because when you drink a high pH like that, it gets buffered in the stomach because the stomach pH is quite low depending on when, when you've eaten. Yeah. It changes significantly, but it's acidic. Um, and when it gets into the stomach, it buffers. So, therefore, that alkalinity effect doesn't transfer into the small intestine, the duodenum, etc. Um and of course, because the blood pH, the alkalinity is so finely tuned, um, changing that significantly only seems to happen when people are on, say, for example, a vegetarian diet, which is far more useful in terms of alkalinity of the blood than drinking alkaline water, which gets buffered in the gut and probably right. does very little in the blood. Yeah. I, you know, you've just tweaked something in my brain, something that I found out, I think it was two years ago, and that was, what is the... 
freezing point of water. People think it's zero degrees. Well, no, it's not. There's, there's the freezing point of H2O, pure H2O, without any minerals or other contaminants or other um, entities in that water. H2O is something like minus 27 degrees Celsius or centigrade. So, it, and yet, so, so basically, what we've thought is water for eons is actually water with stuff in it. Yes, and look, this is the thing. What is the energetics of water? What is the microbiome naturally in water? Because, of course, we evolved from the sea and mm. from the bacteria, um, which are in our mitochondria, etc. So this this is what we're starting to un- trying to unravel is what is the vitality in water? What role does the microbiome have in the um in the way in which water is absorbed in the body, because we're 90% water. If you start looking at how much water is in the brain and in all of our cells, etc., we're far more water than we ever realised. And of course, if water holds memory like we suspect it does, then stress has massive consequences on on our water load, so to speak. You know how they used all that that research by Emoto on how yep. how you think can affect the crystallines. Well, if you're ninety percent or more water, then how you think creates those crystalline aspects within your body and can have fundamental consequences on your health and vitality. But as a building biologist, of course, we focus more on the physical stuff, i.e. what contaminants exist in water. And so it depends on your source. So, for example, if you've got tap water, they put a lot of things in tap water to purify it, and I say that sarcastically, of yeah. course. Um, chlorine is the one that worries me most because it's a very strong antibacterial, and, of course, what impact does that have on the gut microbiome? We, well, do and we know? Does anybody Has anybody looked at that? I've tried to look. I can't find hardly anything on that in the literature in any of the search engines on this, and it's it's really surprising because, you know, especially in a country like Australia that chlorinates its water to get rid of um, pathogenic bacteria, of course, it kills off the good microbiome as well. And it, I thought it, five years into practicing as a naturopath, I thought, what am I doing? I'm prescribing a forty dollar probiotic and then getting people to drink it with chlorinated water. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So I, you know, at very least, if for no other reason, getting rid of the chlorine in the water is really important because logically you would suspect it would have some impact on the microbiome. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'd love to see more research on it, and there's, but there's very little on it at this stage. Yeah. And a simple carbon filter will do that. So a one micron or five micron carbon block filter, which will cost maybe $30, would actually get rid of the chlorine and organic matter like pesticides and petrochemicals out of the um, water supply. Now, countries like Europe, most of uh, Europe actually doesn't chlorinate its water supply. It ozonates its supply, which is a far better Uh way to get rid of microbes, um, pathogenic bacteria, because what it does is obviously where the ozonation plant is, it can be quite toxic because ozone is toxic to the eyes, the lungs, etc. But it's only on contact. So when water goes through an ozonator, it on contact it destroys bacteria. They probably still add a tiny little bit into the distribution system in terms of chlorine, a small amount, but it's significantly a lot lower than what you find in countries like Australia, which rely solely on chlorination to get rid of pathogenic bacteria. And people who live closest to the chlorination plant have much higher levels of exposure to chlorine than those who live at the end of the line. Right. So I think it's really important for practitioners to know where is the chlorination plant for their water distributor and what, how close is it to their patients because the level of chlorine can 
uh, can vary significantly um, depending on where they live. That, now, that's really interesting. Something I've never thought about is how close they are to the plant. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I have to ask, though, I have this dim memory. Everything's a dim memory now. But I have this dim memory that some water supplies in Australia were that chlorine wasn't doing it, that wasn't cutting the mustard, so they had to add in ammonia as well, so it was chloramination. Is that correct or not? Sydney does. Sydney. Sydney uses chloramine, yes. So, And the problem with that is you can't get rid of it um, with the carbon filter, whereas chlorine gas, you can. Yeah. So this is why um, filters uh, are very different depending on where you live. And certainly in Sydney they use chloramine, which, of course, um, means it's more difficult to get rid of. So what I found was that a lot of my patients with skin problems were reacting to chlorine in water. And you often you hear, you know, suffers, they can't have a bath because they're worse, in a shower they're worse. And, of course, they're worse because chlorine is a strong skin and lung irritant. So one of the most effective things I did was I just get them to get a you know sixty dollar shower filter, a KDF shower filter, mm. and that would get rid of all the chlorine, and suddenly their skin would improve significantly. You know, often a lot better than the hundreds of dollars of herbs I was prescribing every month. Wow! Simply because chlorine aggravates the skin. So that was one of the things that I started to try out with my patients. That I found, well, what do we know about skin irritants? And chlorine is certainly the biggest one in the home that can aggravate patients with skin problems, and it's the you know, a simple $60, $70 KDF shower filter will get rid of the chlorine and be quite effective in, in reducing that irritation that so many patients with skin conditions have when they are bathing in, in chlorinated water. Yeah. Now, we'll have to put this up on the FX Medicine website. So KDF, whereabouts yeah. do you get them from? I can get them from hardware stores, from plumbing stores, some plumbing stores. Uh, but the larger hardware stores will normally sell them. Otherwise, online, I've got a list of really good uh, water su- filter supplies on my website ah, that I've used that are ethical, um, and they're great because they're National Certification uh, Foundation, Certified Foundation are certified. That's the NSF, and that's really important that they're all water filters are certified through this body um, in order to make sure that they do what they say they're going to do. So what what, are, what about things like, you know, we're all going to the gym. How should we carry our water around? Is it the stainless steel bottle? Glass or stainless steel is your, your really your only two options. Yeah. And, and look, plastics, all plastics leach at room temperature. And, of course, the hotter they get or even freezing them in the, free, in the freezer also enables the, um, the resins to leach. So it's a real problem. I think people should be moving away from plastics altogether and definitely going to either, you know, stainless steel glass if they're carrying them or, you know, ceramic cups and things like that or yeah. porcelain would be a better option. I, um, what's Definitely. interesting to me is we have these lovely stainless steel bottles with a plastic spout on them. Yes. <laughs> and and the straw yes, is do. soft. <laughs> so it's, it's yes, just like yeah, no, you don't want that. But, <laughs> but the plastics that we know are disrupting plastics are uh, your three, uh, five, uh, sorry, three, six, and seven. Mm. So you will find PVC should be avoided, polystyrene should be avoided, and polycarbonate. Your number seven bottles uh, or your resin identification code, the seven with the triangle, 
in the triangle. Um, they could be many different types of plastic. Some of them will be fine, others won't. They're your BPA-free, which I, you should always avoid. Of course, we now know BPA-free, they're using BPS or bisphenol S as a monomer instead of BPA, which is showing to be as bad That's right. or worse in animal studies. So that should be avoided. So, yeah, you're right. Go back to glass, stainless steel, definitely best option. Keep it upright so it's not in contact with the plastic. If the plastic is on there, make sure it's high-density or low-density polyethylene, numbers two or four, um, as they're non-hormone-disrupting plastics. So two, four, and seven, was it? No, avoid seven. Avoid seven. Um, so, yep, two, four, and five are the ones, polypropylene and polyethylene, high and low poly, uh, polyethylene, are the ones that are non-hormone-disrupting. Great. Okay, so let's think about this uh, uh, from a pragmatic level. You know, we people are dehydrated. We, we run around. We certainly don't drink enough water. What do we do? H- how do we actually get hydrated so that we can get the benefit from nice, good, clean drinking water, and I say the clean underlined, and not have any of the, the, the nasties that um, have washed in it or, or remain in it or even put in it from, um, you know, various sources? Well, organic coconut water would probably be your best option, I think, for hydration. Um, but in terms of water, yeah, I filter my water supply. So I we were renting for a long time and an and RO system, because it has to be plumbed in, is can be quite expensive and it has to – you've got a lot of wastewater with that as well. So for a rental, I would use a um, benchtop filter that has at least two or three different canisters. The first one's normally a pre-sediment filter to get rid of the um, larger particles, sediment, etc., and to put along the life of the carbon filter. The next two would be solid block carbon filters, normally one or five microns. So that microns relates to the whole size in the carbon filter itself, and that determines what can actually get through or mm. not. Mm. The problem with carbon, of course, is that it's perfect for bacteria to grow on. So it's so important that you change your cartridges at least every 12 months because you'll find a biofilm will grow on it. And if once it, all those sites get taken up, it will flush those contaminants back into the water supply. Yeah. So what I find is I'll, when I'm doing audits of homes is that people go, oh, yeah, I've got a water filter, and you ask them when they replace their carbon filters and they haven't. No, that's right. I, look, I remember when I used to live in Sydney years ago and there, and I didn't know any better. I thought I was doing the right thing, having a uh, – back, back there the best I could get was a one micron. Um, and after oh, four months, six months, there was a layer of sludge. There was a biofilm, and it was a biofilm. What we know now is, is a biofilm on the inside of the cartridge. Um, and so you could just literally wipe it off and get – you know, it would bank up on your finger. It was that thick. Um, now I started to go, oh, you know, I'll change it more than 12, uh, less than 12 months. I'll change it at eight months. But going by what you're saying, I should have been changing it every six months and having more than one filter in line. Yes, absolutely. Cause if you only got one, then of course it's going to do less than half the job. Yeah. Then say two or three system. Cause a reverse osmosis is actually normally a five or six stage process. And basically it's just got more carbon filters in it. And it's got an ultra-filter membrane, and it's that membrane that gets rid of very small atoms like fluoride. But generally you'll find it'll have at least one sediment filter followed by three carbon filters in an RO system, and then this ultra-membrane. So if you can replicate at least half of that, you know, with at least two carbon block filters, et cetera, then you'll reduce your heavy metal load, not get rid of it, but you'll reduce it. Mm. You'll reduce your fluoride, you'll, redu- you'll get rid of all your chlorine, all your 
organic contaminants like um, pesticides and hydrocarbons and things like that. So you will uh, filter it rather than your kidneys having to do it for you. Now, just a, a point that I need cleared up for me on reverse osmosis. I remember from years and years and years ago, somebody saying that they didn't like reverse osmosis because they were quite wasteful of water. They actually wasted water for the amount that you got through the tap. Is that right or not? Yes, the old RO systems used to be one to three. So one litre of clean water would be three waste litres oh, of waste water. You're kidding. So when would you advocate the use of an, a rev, of a reverse osmosis system? In uh, If you've got bore or well water where the levels of contaminants are unknown right. and they change significantly because of the geology of the aquifers, that are supplying the bore well tank or if they're near farming or pesticides and things, definitely. People with chemical sensitivities, I would like to get rid of everything in there um, to reduce their load. Mm. That's another way I would do that. Um, kids on the spectrum, I would recommend an RO system if they can afford it just to reduce their load. Um, personally, I don't think we should be relying on water for nutrients because this is a big one that people say with RO, get rid of everything, but... You know, your your diet and your food is really where most of your nutrition comes from and that's really important, you know, rather than relying on water to do that because you're already killing most of it off, the best stuff, like your microbiome with chlorine. (laughs) So if you do something else, I think, you know, I think it's ironic in naturopathy. We spend four years full-time in it and completely ignore water, Mm. which you need more than food. Um, you know, as an important source of well-being that you need to get rid of this chlorine. You should reduce or get rid of the fluoride if you can. Um, And certainly, I mean, other things in the tap water could include aluminium. Aluminium sulfate is used as a flocculating agent to combine, bind the sediment and, and, you know, to be able to get rid of the sediment in the water. So you have low levels of that. But probably the best thing to look at if you're drinking tap water is get your a water supplier's last report because they normally have it online and it shows you everything that's in the water that they've assessed, checked for and uh, that gives you a good idea of what you're actually drinking. Okay, so um, where is this sort of stuff accessible? Through the local council or through a state body? Through your water distributor. So, for example, where I live, we've got Yarra Valley Water because it comes from the Yarra River. Right. So you just look on their website. So whoever's supplying your water go on to their website. And there's a lot of really useful resources on that website. Um, one of the things I haven't mentioned that's a real issue for drinking water quality is trihalomethanes, which are basically when chlorine in the water combines with any organic matter, it forms very strong known carcinogens. Mm. So you'll find on your water report, they'll have THMs or trihalomethanes, and the levels of that are within acceptable standards according to the Australian Drinking Water Guidelines. But the problem is, that what's accept- when is a carcinogen acceptable? Yeah, oh, that's right. It was it was like uh, what accept- what's the acceptable level of lead, which I'm, is a segue that I'm going to get onto now. Because there was yeah. a, a story just what last week, which was um, which broke about the levels of lead in Australia, and it's not um, just in the mining towns and things like that. And the, it was the tap that was the major culprit. Uh, this was was it Macquarie Uni? Yeah. So brass, brass has small, has a whole lot of different alloys in it, and lead is a small percentage of that. And of course, you know, this is the thing we think. You know, when things are lead-free, that in the definition, it can still enable small amounts of lead. And if they're imported, then, you know, no one's actually regulating that. No. I mean, when's the last one that we, you know, when this is the problem with chemical regulation that I wrote about in my paper was, you know, 
we might regulate them here for Australian manufacturers, but when was the last time your tap was bought from an Australian manufacturer? Mm, mm, that's right. Nicole, I have to ask, and I hope this isn't out of sort of turn, but can we put your paper up on the FX Medicine website or can we? is there access to that paper through your website? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's free. It's free on the um, PubMed. But, yes, I'll send that to you and you can have a look at that. It goes through you know, environmental chemical assessment, the problem and exposure standards, what clinicians need to do in order to assess chemical load and the difficulties of doing that simply because... Then, you know, we have over 120 million chemicals now registered on the world's largest database, mm. and every 60 seconds another 20 chemicals get registered. So we're it's in a situation that is just horrific because the load is increasing in our air, water, food. But since the changes in farming practices, since the um, burden of proof not being on industry to prove safety, mm. we are constantly increasing our load. And that means the canaries and people with um, SNPs in detoxification pathways are going to be hit first, but eventually we all will be. So can I ask about that? Uh, when you're looking at detox and you're looking at, you know, good old drinking water, do you find that there is a certain group of patients where you can just point to them and just say, you're a canary? <laughs> like, like, do you find it's a really obvious uh, link? Well, I haven't had enough of my patients who've been doing SNPs for me to double check, but as part of my master's, I asked a whole lot of um, GPs who specialise in environmental chemicals on their uh, experience with the assessing environmental chemicals in their patients. And they had some amazing things to say. And they said the canaries are people who within half a minute will be able to size you up and know whether you actually give a shit about them or not. <laughs> they will be very susceptible. Like, and this is what he asked his patients. Mm. You know, they've seen 10 other practitioners before he sees them and he specialised in chronic fatigue. Mm. And he said... Just ask them, what did you, who have you seen and what did you think of them? And they would size them up in half, 30 seconds. They yeah. knew. They're so sensitive to the environment. That they're sensitive to smell, sensitive to noise. They're very aware of other people and can pick up other people's personality very quickly. Um, and because they're the canaries in the mind, he said, they move away from the problem, the chemicals, the perfumes, the smells. He said, you know, in 35 years of practicing full-time as a doctor specializing in chronic fatigue syndrome, I've had less than a handful of patients with chronic fatigue with cancer. And he said, the reason is, is because they know to move away from those poisons. They right. are in tune with the environment. And he said, these are the people that, as a society, are uh, critical that we study these people because they are warning us that there is a problem with wireless technology, with chemical load, because the rest of us are ignorant to it and then die suddenly of cancer or cardiovascular disease and they don't. And I've got to say, this is such a Pandora's box, this issue. We started on particulates, we're ending on particulates, but unfortunately we've run out of time today. Nicole, would you be available if we really dive into it, the exploration of particulates, how we can help people filter out these particulates, and indeed how you can, as natural health practitioners, um, enable or enhance detox in these canaries that we've spoken about? And I also want to, in, a, in another subsequent podcast, explore the area of electromagnetic fields, because this is somewhere that I'm a dunce in. Would you be available to join us on FX Medicine at another time? Yes, of course, Andrew, I'd love to. Nicole, I, I just get such great information out of you. And I've got to say, I'm a bit stunned. I'm blinking here with this. How many thousands deaths was it? Uh, over 3,000 related to ambient air exposure in Australia. 
That is absolutely stunning and a travesty of health. I can't believe yes, it. Exactly. I mean, these things need to be explored and there's simple steps that clinicians can take in order to reduce their client exposure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held from the 21st to the 23rd of April 2017 in Sydney. This promises to be another sellout event. For more information, including registration, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au.